Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the second episode of the Eurocopa podcast sponsored by Sling Latino. Today we will be getting into Group B and Group C uh, and joining me again, me being Nipun Chopra, uh, host of World Soccer Talk, are my good friends and co-hosts Chris Henach, Gabe Smith and Karthik Krishnayar. Gentlemen, when we fir- uh, la- uh, last left off yesterday, we discussed uh, in, in detail Group A. Today we will talk about Group B and Group C. We'll start with Group B first, Chris. Chris, this is a group that has Brazil, Ecuador, Haiti, and Peru. Uh, usually when we think of any group having Brazil in it, we automatically assume that that group is already uh, – is essentially fighting for second place because Brazil is going to win. However, this is not the case this year, Chris, because it's pretty much a backup team that is being sent to this competition because – the main team, the the main uh, uh, the main team is focused on the Olympics that are being held later this summer. So, um, we we know there's no Neymar, no Douglas Costa, David Luiz, Sil- uh, Thiago Silva, Fernandinho, Ramirez, Oscar. All those players are missing, and we are left with a a bunch of players that are either just coming back into the international fold or are coming through the ranks, and then a few players like Coutinho who would obviously be in the squad. So. Talk to me about this Brazil team and where you rank them right now in this group. I, th- I think where I rank them personally is, is still top of it. Now, that's based on an expectation of who they sure, are. Sure. What I would caveat all of that with is there's a lot of problems going on with this team at the minute. You've got the Neymar decision to, to not uh, bring him along. The fact that Dunga isn't highly thought of in Brazil, he's actually constantly questioned over whether he has a future with this national team. There's the ghosts of the World Cup, I think, still hanging over them. The ghosts of the Copa America last year still hanging over them. You've then got, on top of that, you talked about the players who won't be there. You didn't even mention Thiago Silva and uh, Marcello, who have been kind of put out into the cold. You've you've got further problems with them, kind of who plays up front, and, and Lucas Lima, and whether he can sort of perform on, on what will be a high-pressure stage. I think this is is a little bit getting lost in the, the mire of everything because of what goes on elsewhere. There's going to be a lot of pressure on these Brazil players. Yeah. Granted, it's in the States. It's it's away from home. You could forge an argument that being so far away from home, you can play without pressure. You're not under that intense spotlight than if you were playing in Brazil, for example. I still am concerned, though, with the number of just underlying issues this squad has from 
as I said, the instability of the manager to the fact that you're putting a lot of young players in there or a lot of the, the lesser-known names relative to that squad and expecting them to do something. And in some ways, they're going to be burdened with the performances of players before them. And that's a very difficult thing to deal with. Karthik, one of the players that I think we should discuss uh, is uh, Kaká. Now, Kaká is a player that uh, we were talking about this before we started recording. At the 2010 World Cup, Kaká was one of the most sought-after players in the world. He was one of the best players in the world when he was at AC Milan. At that World Cup, he got injured in the quarterfinals. Brazil uh, struggled after that point. And to be honest, since then, Kaká's career has taken a downturn. It really was a turning point for him. Uh, he went to Real Madrid, struggled with injuries, uh, never lived up to his name tag, really. Uh, sorry, his price tag. And now is in the M- in MLS where he's, um, you know, he, he's the best player paid player in the in MLS but might not be the best player in the MLS so is this a chance for Kaká to regain some of the the some of the great standing that some of the high standing he had in the world of football potentially it is and he wasn't even in the squad until earlier this week or right or, or late last week when uh, uh, Douglas Costa from Bayern withdrew from the squad after scoring the winning penalty in the German Cup final against Borussia Dortmund so uh, Kaká, I, I watch him game in and game out with Orlando City. I cover that team as a beat writer. Orlando, with Orlando City, Kaká has been influential when he's match fit. But even at the MLS level, he's not he's match fit, it seems, every other game. Or um, he'll have two, three game stretches where he's very fit. He can play a good 90 minutes. Then he tails off. Then he gets hurt. Then... And he's out a couple of weeks. Then he comes back and is very good for a few weeks and then tails back off. And he's just not even consistent in Major League Soccer in his mm-hmm. performances. That having been said, this is a short tournament. He's an experienced player. He's an influential player still. And there are – I can point to several uh, three or four game stretches with Orlando City in Major League Soccer where he's been the best player on that team and one of the best players in the league. So he can do it in sm- – small sample sizes, which is all uh, a tournament, which is three weeks is, but um, he isn't a consistent player and I wouldn't count on it. However, it is a last hurrah for him on the international stage. And as you said, he's been out of the international game at at this kind of high level since the 2010 World Cup. So uh, he might come and and, and, uh, have a great tournament. I have to say, though, for Orlando, he has not had a really good game since the uh, since the April 3rd game against Portland. When they won four to one at the Citrus Bowl, he's been uh, uh, kind of uh, inconsistent in his performances, and uh, at times he's getting marked out of games easily, uh, particularly on some of the narrow pitches in in, in MLS. So um, that's a concern. Gabe, the what I wanted to ask you was one of the issues with Brazil for me ever since uh, the original Ronaldo retired is finding a good striker. I know mm-hmm. people talk about Neymar being a striker; he's still not. A traditional striker, striker for me, uh, not a traditional Brazilian striker in that sense yet, and he's not even even he's not available in this uh, tournament anyway. So they are stuck with Hulk, who, who for a while there was, you know, the next whoever named someone, maybe the old Ronaldo, but really hasn't lived up to his billing. Uh, and to me, that is a serious issue for Brazil, not having a striker uh, and having to maybe play Hulk there 
and maybe Coutinho, I guess Coutinho could play behind him, but there's not even Firmino who, who could play as yeah. a false nine as he has mm-hmm. at Liverpool. So talk to me about that striker position, which I think is a big issue for Brazil. Yeah, no, I, I think you're 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 100 right. It has been, um, you know, kind of the elephant in the room for Brazil uh, over the the past couple of tournaments, international tournaments, is you know who who is really going to fill uh, that that big gaping hole that has been left ever since you know Ronaldo retired then from from Brazil national team, um, and and as you pointed out in that introduction, uh, Hulk definitely isn't that that player. I think if anything, you still look at Hulk, and I think his his best. Uh, position is still out wide. Uh, so it's in the same way of kind of Neymar to where you, you really wouldn't want to be ideally playing him as a central striker mm-hmm. uh, by himself. And so, you know, Hulk, Hulk adds, uh, you know, I think some attributes uh, to the squad. He's going to be the, the most experienced striker uh, for Brazil. And, and I, 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 I do assume that you probably will see him featured uh, most often, who I'm really kind of looking forward to, to watching. And this is then his uh, first international tournament for Brazil is uh, Gabriel Barbosa uh, mm-hmm. or Gabigol uh, as he's commonly referred to then in Brazil uh, a, 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 a player from Santos uh, has had a great year um, at, at Santos both he and his uh, his teammate uh, Lucas Lima uh, out there in the wing area um, some good chemistry there um, now again I think with this being his first tournament I, I don't see him starting right away but I, I do I think that you're going to have maybe you know some pressure on on Hulk to, to perform, um, and if through the first game or two uh, you don't see much production, um, you know I, I wouldn't put it past them to uh, to put um, you know Gabriel, uh, who I think is the most natural uh, striker that's in this current lineup uh, for the uh, Copa America tournament. Um, you know, seeing him getting some action and at some point in time during the group stages, uh, and I think that's it's it's really going to be helpful. This is a young player, I believe he is 19 years old. Um, he's going to have obviously a, a a long Brazil career ahead of him if, if he can be able um, to to cement this position as his own and uh, and and really kind of vault into the the uh, you know echelon of uh, of uh, you know famous Brazil strikers. Yeah, well said. Let's talk about Ecuador, Kartik. Um, for me, first of all, dark horses, possibly, right? They've been in incredible form recently, have beaten Argentina, beaten Uruguay, uh, play, uh, teams that they will come up possibly in later stages of this group. Uh, and ge- I genuinely believe that they have the beating of Brazil. Yeah, I was really surprised when Gustavo Quinteros got appointed uh, their their manager. Uh, he had managed the Bolivian national team without much success, former Bolivian international. But, of course, Bolivia just isn't very good right uh we found that out Ecuador's, <laughs> in the u.s game <laughs> yeah, well, well, yeah, we found that out again when they played the u.s the other day but yeah. um what we what has always been the uh trademark of ecuador in qualifying is that they get teams at altitude in quito and they they basically bleed them to death for lack of a better term and they're not very good away from home well in qualifying this time uh, in south american common ball qualifying they came out of the gates quickly away from home and continued to be strong at altitude in quito so they they've they're playing very well uh, they they've got a good team when you look at their squad you've got a lot of players that that people uh, will recognize that follow leagues in europe who who may not think uh, put two together and realize, oh, that that player is uh, that player is Ecuadorian. Th- this player is Ecuadorian. Uh, you know, the the key guy for me, I, I saw Ecuador in a friendly here uh, at in Fort Lauderdale uh, back in uh, late 2014. 
2018 after the World Cup. For me, the key player in that friendly was uh, the two key players were both guys who play in England. Uh, Jefferson Montero. Absolutely. Who's had some injuries this season from Swansea uh, out wide and enter Valencia, who, uh, regardless of what he's done at West Ham, he's had some moments actually at West Ham. At the international level, when he plays, he is spectacular and he can score a goal from tight angles. He can take players on. He can play with his back to goal, uh, even though he's not what you would uh, characterize as a, as a target striker by any stretch of the imagination. Really versatile player. So I like this Ecuador team. I, I agree with you. I think they're a dark, dark horse not only in this group, but in this tournament. They could go a long way. Chris, another player that uh, I think the versatility is a key thing to focus on. I mean, I look at Antonio Valencia. Obviously, people know uh, who listen regularly know I'm a Man United supporter. Tony Valencia plays at right back for Man United these days, but he's a winger. And what I find amazing when he plays for Ecuador, and he doesn't do this anywhere else, he's not done it at, uh, never did it at Wigan, doesn't do it at Man United. He plays central midfield very often. He plays as a... Uh, as a box-to-box midfielder and it kind of uh, he might not do that in this World Cup but that's the versatility of all these players they're interchangeable and that makes it difficult for other teams to mark Ecuador I think what you can say about Valencia relative to him playing central midfield is he's just got a tremendous engine to him yeah yeah Um, he really hasn't slowed down from his days at Wigan in that sense He, he can still get up and down the park very easily and I think Again, we've seen this with other players, that ability to, if you've got the physical, you can play a position like that quite comfortably, um, assuming your technique is good enough, which to be fair, his is. And I think that's one of the reasons he's he's survived at Manchester United. And In some ways, you have to be able to evolve to survive at that club. And he's gone from someone who arrived and was seen as a winger and has now moved to right back. And again, for the most part, hasn't disappointed. I I don't think he's called up trees. I don't think he's been sensational. He's been reliable, though, which is what you can... Ask as the bare minimum, I think, of a fullback. Um, for me, if, looking at this this Ecuador squad personally, the central midfielders, the, or the position of central midfielder, excuse me, that you talked about, that's where my kind of focus is because you've got Carlos Gruezo, who is now at FC Dallas, was at Stuttgart, was actually watched by Chelsea for a, a decent period um, when Mourinho was there. Mm-hmm. And I was quite surprised that the Dallas managed to get him, actually, because, again, I thought, Maybe another team in Europe might fancy him and give him an opportunity. And he's taken well to MLS. The other one is Christian Neboa, who, for those of, of our listeners who, who aren't following the Russian league closely, um, which I imagine is a good portion of him, <laughs> um, he plays for FC Rostov, and they've essentially done a Leicester, um, to borrow a phrase, in the sense that they finished near the bottom the previous season, and they've pushed CSK right to the, the wire this campaign and finished second. Mm. And he's been very important for that team. And I think... Granted, he's a little bit older than the player I'm about to compare him to, but Celso Borges, who played for Costa Rica at the World Cup and had sort of a breakout tournament, if you will. everyone kind of came away and said he's a very good player and he got a move to, to Deportivo on the back of it. I don't know if, if Nabo will get that because he's, he's into his 30s now, but I could see him having a similar kind of successful tournament because he was on the scrap heap, to be, to be very blunt about it, when Rostov picked him up. But I think Coming off the back of that good season with them, I would really cast my eye on, on him and Groezo if, if I was someone wanting to maybe see some under-the-radar players that could shine because I think both of them will do well in this tournament. Gabe, let's talk. Let's switch to Haiti, a, a team that some people are unfairly assuming will be whipping boys in this group. Uh, this is their first Copa, which is very exciting. Uh, and uh, Karthik and I and you will know a lot of these players then uh, uh, who play in the NASL in this squad. Um, 
and I want to talk to you about this. Tell me, first of all, do you, do you think they have a chance of getting out of this group? Uh, and secondly, if, if there are any players that stand out for you in terms of uh, really good ability that will stand out for this Haiti team? Um, you know, I, I don't think it's necessarily a complete discredit to them if they if if uh, by saying that they that they won't get out of the group. I, I think that more has to do with uh, again just the the quality in the team for for Ecuador and and Brazil. Um, I, I think my probably my my biggest area of concern when looking at this squad is is just where the goals come from. Uh, I just don't see Haiti at this point having enough firepower. Uh, to be able to get over the likes of Ecuador and Brazil, um, you look at then their their past uh, three matches, uh, which have all been uh, World Cup qualifiers. Uh, I think that at this point in time they have uh, two losses and and a draw, uh, and have only put then one goal. Uh, I'm sorry, I haven't didn't put a single goal uh, together then in those in those three matches uh, against uh, twice against Panama and then once against Jamaica. Um, so I, I think that's that's the the biggest concern. Now I think the good news here for for Haiti is you're starting to get um, you know this is a, a team that has not had much experience on the international stage. This is uh, you know their first Copa America tournament, um, but you have a lot of players now who are. Um, Embedding, you know, in other countries there and, and making a name for themselves in their professional careers. Um, many of those that that are watching NASL um, uh, will will find some familiarity uh, in some of these names. But for me, really, I, I mean, there there isn't um, really anyone particular that that is a standout for me uh, necessarily. Again, like I said, just in terms of it, uh, uh, probably the the most that I have um, uh, familiarity with um, is going to be. Uh, uh, Gene Alexandre over at Fort Lauderdale Strikers, mm-hmm. um, right. and then uh, and Pascal uh, Million over at Armada, just from NASL. Uh, but that's it's it's really like I said. I, I think this is going to be a good opportunity for them to um, get some more international exposure. Have these players, you know, kind of be able to get their um, uh, their first experience really playing in a tournament. But I just don't see them going that far. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree with that, to be honest, because looking at the forwards as well. You've got Jean-Hude Maurice, who was at PSG, but he's now, I think, in the Vietnamese League. You've got Mm -hmm. Kevin's Belfort, who's in the second tier in Turkey. There's just not a lot of pedigree amongst these lads, to be be fair to them, without wishing to to insult them. And when you look at that, you've got to think that there's just not going to be enough quality there. I mean, personally, before I kind of really understood this team, I was kind of surprised Derek Etienne wasn't in there, because from what I've seen, he looks a heck of a little player. But again, it's it's just there's not a wealth of quality in our forward line. And I think when you look at a team being a whipping boy, that tends to be one of the big problems is there's no one to, to stop the, the kind of onslaught. Well, we saw that last year in the Gold Cup when they completely outplayed the United States. Uh, James Marceline, right. who's now with the Carolina Railhawks, was with Fort Lauderdale a year ago had mixed this screwed in his pocket for 90 minutes and Pascal Millian had a very good game Maychek Jerome former Sporting Kansas City player former Orlando City uh, player now playing with Jacksonville actually excellent in defense but they didn't have anyone to finish the chances and the U.S. got one chance uh, basically in the game one good chance created by Zardes uh, finished by Dempsey and they won 1-0 and um, that, to me, was very indicative of Haiti when I've seen them uh, I've seen them a lot they, they train it Fort Lauderdale. So I see them in training. They play a lot of friendlies here. They, uh, a lot of their players are actually Floridians. Pascal Millian grew up in the Lakeland area. Jean Alexandre grew up th- down the street from me in, in Delray Beach. So I know a lot of these players and they they tend to be overloaded in the midfield and in wide positions because they have mm-hmm. either very big players or very 
fast players, but they don't have those kind, that kind of technical footballer you need up front. They had Fabrice Noel a few years ago. He's, he's the best striker they've had in a long time. But I, I agree with all of you in the analysis, and it's just the body types of players they have. They don't have the kind of player that you can set up as a number nine and, and play off of the guy. So uh, I think they're probably going to have a long tournament because of that. Yeah, well, you guys are all wrong because they have Sonny Norcher. <laughs> And he plays in the I League for Mohan Bagan, and that's the best league in the world. That's the Indian. There you league. go. Yeah, that's <laughs> talking about. It. That's get real you, quality. Get, there. get your bets in now, people. <laughs> All right, guys, Karthik, let's stick with you. Let's talk about Peru and finish out this group. Um, it's a young squad. Seven players on this team have zero or one caps internationally. Thirteen out of twenty have less than ten caps. Another squad that is rebuilding. Uh, and I actually I picked them to finish fourth behind Haiti. But um, so, so yeah, your thoughts? Yeah, I think Haiti's actually going to finish third in the group. I said they were going to have a long tournament because they're not mm-hmm. going to get out of it. They, remember, they got out of the group last year in the uh, in the Gold Cup and played very well, which is why they're in this tournament uh, to begin with. There was a qualifying process from Concacaf. Uh, I think uh, what we've seen is is Ricardo Gar- Gar- Garessa, the uh, manager for for Peru, has has opted for a very experimental squad. I mean, this is a very accomplished club manager in Argentina. Uh, their results have not been good enough in, in, in qualifying uh, for some time in Copa America tournaments. So you're seeing a lot of guys in this uh, in, in this team that are young players, that are guys that they're going to try and build and bloodlet into qualifying so that they can try and climb that, that table. South American qualifying is a slog. It's, it's two years. Uh, you play everybody home and away. So Peru, um, not push, pushing the panic button yet, using this tournament as a springboard into qualifying. I kind of like what they're doing, but because mm-hmm. of that, it's experimental, and they're going to finish fourth in this group, in my opinion. Yeah. Gentlemen, let's move to Group C. Uh, definitely the most competitive group, I think, in the Copa. I think we'll all agree on that. Let's start with uh, Group well, maybe not favorites. Probably favorites to finish second, Mexico. Let's talk about Mexico. Uh, Chris, when I when we had you on ULF, Gabe and I had you on ULF in, I want to say, I want to say it was September. We talk, we were previewing the Man United PSV game, and uh, we talked about h- how both of us feel that Gordado is one of the most underrated midfielders in European competition, and he always takes it to another level when he's playing for Mexico. And for me, along with Chicharito, he will be the central focus of this Mexican team. Mm, well, he scored the other day for, um, I believe, in a, in a victory. Yep, so it's a one nothing victory, yep. He, he is an important player. My issue with, with Mexico is, is the politics of the country that seep into the football. And, and what I mean by that is, you and Donald uh, Trump both. Go on. <laughs> um, in, in, in fairness, I, I want my wall to have a door. Um, that's where I think we differ. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think my issue is you look at someone like Alan Polito, who is unfortunately in the news for all the wrong reasons at the minute. You know, goodness gracious, I hope he's found safe and returned right. to his family. Yeah, the oh, fact yeah. that he's not in that national team now, largely because essentially he, he, uh, he peed off his club in Mexico by leaving. And, and instigating this uh, situation that's gone to the Court of Arbitration for Sport. I think it's currently still with them, in fact, while they decide who is in the right. The fact that he's left out because of that, and, and the, f- the club owners have so much say in that national team. Mm-hmm. Um, if I remember correctly, they even vetted and, and agreed to allow Juan Carlos Osorio to be the coach. That, to me, is a little bit unsettling. I, th- I think perhaps it's coming from an English mentality, but... 
again, Gio De Santos doesn't want to play his turn down and uh, call up. Carlos right. Vela, it's not apparent whether he has, but in many ways that ambiguity typifies this Mexican team in the sense that it's such an inconsistent team and there's so much instability, needless instability, that for me stops them being a more dominant power in this region um, relative to what they should be because I think they should be doing much better. But until they can get their ducks in a row, I think they'll struggle to ever do that. I've actually written a story about this, guys, for World Soccer Talk uh, yeah. a while back about how Mexico, and it's very, especially for English sensibilities, uh, Chris, it's very peculiar, which is why I wrote the article. The clubs, the the, the the clubs in Mexico actually run the federation. There's no ambiguity about it. There's no line of demarcation like there are in other countries between FAs and the professional leagues and the professional clubs. And the clubs are on top of uh, on top of the food chain. Uh, the national team is, is subservient to those clubs. So you get these sorts of situations like the Polito situation. And it's uh, completely backwards from what we are accustomed to watching Western European leagues and Western European FAs. So j- just for our listeners, it, it is actually the inverse relationship in Mexico. The clubs run the federation as opposed to what we perceive happens in other places. Gabe, talk to me a little bit about the the striker situation obviously Chicharito is uh is the focus there he's had mm-hmm. a terrific season at Leverkusen but also very quickly uh I want to point out actually I'll uh, pose the next question to Karthik so t- talk to me about the striker situation in Mexico yeah I, I mean I think that's that's gonna be the, the the key of strength there um you know I I agree with everything that that Karthik and, and Chris just said in terms of I think some of the vulnerabilities there you know, obviously, we could see this being a much scarier side if you had the likes of Giovanni De Santos, Carlos Vela uh, playing in this in this uh, in this particular tournament. But but we're not. But for Mexican fans, uh, you have Javier Hernandez, who had an absolutely amazing season uh, at Bayer Leverkusen. Uh, I think that's the one thing to to kind of um, you know hang the hat on uh, as Mexican fans. Um, there was some question marks, obviously, in terms of uh, his positioning and and um, um, you know his overall future. Uh, with Manchester United and when making the the transfer uh, to Bayer Leverkusen, I don't think anybody uh, can honestly say that they expected him to perform as well as he did. Really, the most informed striker coming into this tournament, not named Gonzalo Higuain, uh, in my yeah. opinion. So um, I, I think with with Hernandez there, uh, you're definitely going to get uh, some goals knocked in. I'd probably say real quickly, the only other player too uh, besides Guardado to mention is also Hector Herrera. Uh, yeah. Like Hector Herrera quite a bit, uh, f- uh, plays uh, FC Porto um, then uh, for club. And uh, I think that in terms of getting some goals out of the midfield, Guardado is great in terms of his uh, his um, um, delivery and, and being able to create. Uh, I think uh, Herrera is going to be able to add in some goals from, from midfield uh, to help supplement then what, uh, what Chicharito is going to be able to do up top. Karthik, uh, last question about Mexico. Um, I think one thing we should talk about is Rafa Marquez. Uh, Rafa Marquez has been a stalwart for that team for a good part of 10, 12, 15 years. Uh, and he continues to play in this team, continues to start in many games. And his position has changed a little bit. He's, he's, we've seen him deployed uh, as a almost a holding midfielder, just parading in front of the t- uh, that f- defensive line. But I worry that, that the pace of the teams in this group, uh, Uruguay and Jamaica, definitely point out are, are two teams that jump out will trouble this Mexican defensive line and that's the big concern for me 
Yeah, that's a big concern for me about Mexico in this uh, this tournament as well. Venezuela also has has some quick players that they're going to have oh, to account right. for. Rondon, Rondon, yeah, Rondon is a very very accomplished player. Actually, he's been handed the number nine shirt already for next season by West Brom. So that, that tells you uh, what they think of him there. So uh, I, I think they have some defensive concerns. Uh, uh, Lyon is a player I like a great deal. Uh, Rafa Mark has his experience is, is important. Uh, Hector Moreno uh, is another is a teammate of Guardados at, at PSV, who's a who's a fairly good defender. And, and Paul Aguilar at, at America is a, a fairly good defender. But so they have man marking issues where. I've seen many games, and we here in the states we're blessed. We see as much of Mexico as we do of any other national team in the world. There are a number of games where there's been this, uh, and this is part of the reason why Rafa Marquez is playing this role at times, this defensive midfield role, which uh, Gerardo Torado previously played. You want an enforcer in front of that back four, but you also want a player who's tactically savvy. Because there are huge gaps that have opened up at times between the midfield of Mexico and the back line. And there are also situations where Mexican defenders get turned inside out by quick wingers. And, uh, and, and then the central defenders are pulled out of positions. They lose their mark, and that leads to chances for the opposition. Uh, Miguel Herrera tried to solve this uh, by playing a 3-5-2 or 5-3-2, however you interpret the formation. Uh, it, it cut down a lot of these errors and mistakes by having three central defenders. Now under Osorio, they've gone back to a four-man back line, although uh, Herrera had basically gone back to that. Uh, but he played that in the World Cup in 2014, and there were some real concerns defensively for Mexico. So I, I think that's something to look out for that could be negative for this team. Agreed. Chris, let's talk about Uruguay. Uh, one of the strongest teams in this <clears throat> competition, even if Suarez is missing. Um, obviously, with Suarez, they're a different level. Uh, his his hamstring injury is obviously going to be uh, become clearer as the weeks go on, but... They have a very good defensive uh, setup uh, with Godin and Jimenez, uh, Jimenez from uh, uh, Atletico Madrid, who we just we, uh, we saw in the Champions League final. And I see quality throughout this team. And other than other than uh, maybe Mexico, I can see them really having a beating on a lot of the teams in this uh, in this group, even though it's the most competitive group. I really think Uruguay is a very good team. I see why you think that because. Again, you, you mentioned the two defenders there. They play together at club level. I think that can help. I think that will breed an understanding to begin with that will, will trump a lot of the teams that they come up against. And equally, you know, people talk about the, the potential of the Suarez injury. Take him out completely for a second. You've still got Edinson Cavani in there. You've still got Abel Hernandez, who, granted, he's had issues, but he can find the net. He's not uh, a complete car horse. You've then got Gaston Ramirez coming off a fairly decent season with Middlesbrough, I'd say. Nicholas Ladero at Boca Juniors. Um, mm-hmm. you, you have quality in this team. And I think, again, this is something that, that perhaps people didn't uh, kind of consider when this team played in the World Cup. Yes, they're not the prettiest all the time, but they're effective. Mm-hmm. They're the, the WD-40 and duct tape of South American football in that sense. It's not always nice to look at, but it will <laughs> definitely get the job done. And again, if they can even kind of rely on, on Suarez a little bit, because this is the thing. He, he is a game changer, undeniably. Diego Roland is coming off a good season as well. If you can get the likes of Roland, Cavani, and even Suarez in there playing, you've got a forward line that will cause, I would argue, every defence in this tournament right. trouble. Um, and, and that's the thing that you have to remember is that 
even away from the plays, let's let's go a little bit deeper and, and think psychologically. Uruguay have such a fantastic record in this competition, and even with their coach, he's he's very much kind of instilled Oscar Tavares the the, the mentality of them that there is no excuses. Right. We just always win. We get the job done. There's and definitely an Atletico Simeone, uh, Atletico, sorry, Diego Simeone feeling to Tabarez, isn't there? There is, there is. And, and look, I mean, Kartik kindly mentioned a piece I did quite recently on another pod that we did. Um, and it made me think to something that Eric Winald has said about the team in, in 95, the US team. And he said, we just had this mentality of no excuses. No excuses because they don't help at all. They just make things worse. And that's the vibe that I get with this Uruguay team is that, again, they never feel sorry for themselves. We, we in the, the kind of the wider media or ever, you know, the wider viewing public talk about how small the population is and how yeah. they shouldn't have a chance and all these kind of underdog mentalities. Yet they don't seem ever affected by that. If anything, they seem to harness that and you really use it as fuel to propel themselves. And for that reason alone, I have tipped them elsewhere to, to potentially go all the way with this, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if, if come the end of June, that's who we're watching uh, in Rutherford. Yeah, it's a pretty crazy thing that a, a country of three and a half million, which is one quarter of the population of New Delhi in India, is a <laughs> massive powerhouse in football. It's pretty, this it's this is so important, uh, I think, when you evaluate international football, creating a club mentality within an international team. And that's right. what uh, Tabarez has done since he, he came back and took the Uruguay job again for the second stint in 2006. This is what, uh, again, I don't want to get too deep into it. We'll get into it tomorrow when we preview the uh, U.S.-Columbia game. But uh, this is what Jurgen Klinsmann has failed to do with the United right. States. In fact, he's created an environment where players want to uh, show up for national team games and get back to their clubs as soon as possible. Uh, but that's part of the secret of Uruguay's success. I, I agree with Chris. It's uh, or with you, Nipun. Whoever said it was like a Simeone thing. Yeah. Very similar. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead, and, and real quickly, I also like Buslera, uh as well. I think he's the, the best keeper in the tournament, not named uh, mm. Keller Navas or, or Claudio Bravo. So uh, plays at Galatasaray for club. Uh, but I think he's going to be, uh, again, with, with those two center backs in front, they're, uh, they're going to be set up well defensively for Uruguay. Typical Gabe going for the goalkeeper. Gabe, <laughs> Gabe I'm going to stick with you and talk about Jamaica. You and I were uh, sitting together when we watched Jamaica knock out the U.S. last year in uh, in, in Copa. Uh, since then, however, they've not really done well. Mm-hmm. However, they're the only team in this group to have a Premier League uh, – in this uh, competition to have a current Premier League winner, and that's Wes Morgan. So uh, the, the strengths of Jamaica – Obviously, are is in uh, their physicality, their counterattacking side, uh, play with speedy forwards and and try to get the ball to the wings. Uh, but in general, they're not a very well organized team. So I actually see them finishing behind Venezuela this this time around. Yeah, I, I think that's that's certainly possible. Um, uh... You know, out of this group, like you like you mentioned um, in kind of the preview there. Uh, you know, this is a very competitive group um yes, the, yes, from yeah. top from top top bottom uh i, I think it, it's it's really <clears throat> going to be a service to jamaica as a whole uh, uh no matter what position that they, they fall in because if you you know see them maybe um you know in group b uh i, I think you could you could probably see a, a better result uh out of this uh this squad than we're probably going to see then um uh in in group c here so i i you know i i, I like i like 
like the presence that they bring. They are, as you mentioned, a very physical team. Uh, Wes Morgan, I think, in, in terms of it, we've, we saw this season um, where he's been so underrated, uh, I think, in terms of the presence that he can bring to a club. Um, and, and to your point, this isn't maybe necessarily the most organized team uh, but when you have then uh, a captain like Wes Morgan, um, who's going to be able to bring some presence and now some some honors uh, to this to this cl- to this uh, na- the, the national team here at this point, uh, I I think that you will probably see um, I think that the, the most decisive game between Jamaica and Venezuela uh, will not be a, a cakewalk for for Venezuela uh, by any stretch for sure. Karthik, let's talk about the final team in this group, Venezuela. We already talked about Rondon. Uh, but the big overarching issue here, Karthik, is this is a team, uh, uh, an organization actually, that is falling apart. There's been lots of infighting between the players who have taken a stance against the administration, uh, including the overarching um, uh, administration, administrative bodies. And that's what is really hanging in the balance here. Venezuela, as a football nation, is uh, collectively falling apart. Correct. It's falling. I mean, this is just indicative of what's going on in the country politically as well. And mm-hmm. uh, this this team has made such strides, always traditionally seen as a baseball country, made such great strides in football in the last decade. In fact, I have to say some of that, even though he had, he had been a baseball fan, uh, traditionally a baseball fan, some of that happened under Hugo Chavez's watch because right. there was investment in sport in general and the, the, the football, the soccer got better. And they hosted the Copa in 2007, which uh, gave a boost to uh, – uh, Venezuelan football in a similar fashion that you see other kind of outsider host nations get a boost from, uh, uh, I think, uh, hosting the Euros and or co-hosting the Euros in 2008 really gave a boost to Austria to get them back to to a top level internationally. The 94 World Cup obviously was a springboard for the United States to get uh, to become a, a top tier or a second tier nation, however you, you, you interpret it. Venezuela had that same boost coming out of the, the Copa in 2007 and actually uh, did okay in World Cup qualifying for both 10 and 14 relative to expectations, relative to, to the historical considerations. But now things are falling apart for them. And that's why I think uh, given Jamaica's organization and last year in the Copa, Jamaica got uh, lost all three matches in the group stage 1-0, right. took that into the Gold Cup and and blitzed through the Gold Cup until the final, uh, where I thought it was unfortunate because they had been the better team than Mexico the entire tournament. Mexico had a better game than them in the final, but uh, were probably the best team in CONCACAF last summer, Jamaica. So I think maybe Jamaica can finish third in this group. Uh, there are a lot of quality players in this uh, in, in this uh, Venezuela team. I'll just mention a few. You mentioned Rondon. Uh, Christian Santos is a player I like. He's finally getting a good look in the national team. Um, uh, Jose Martinez uh, at Torino is, is a good player uh, and a player that I think uh, has the ability to score for goals in this tournament. Uh, uh, spelling Rondon, uh, I have uh, Rin- Gone is a player uh, who's, of course, a Genoa now, who's a uh, influential player, a player who helps keep them organized in midfield. Uh, but I think maybe the external factors are going to be too great for this team to uh, have an impact on this tournament. Absolutely. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, tomorrow we will come back to talk to you about Group D, which has Argentina, Chile, Panama, and Bolivia. And as well as we'll update you on uh, the news and uh, give you some more in-depth analysis of the U.S. men's national team. So on behalf of everyone over here at the Eurocopa podcast, this is Nipun Chopra saying goodbye. Uh, And on behalf of Chris, Gabe, and uh, Karthik, lead us away. 
Enjoy your football.